Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi there, and thanks for joining us. I am excited to share with you a conversation that I recently had with Alex Naresta of the Cato Institute. Alex is the Director of Immigration Studies and the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies at Cato. He is an expert on immigration. He may have a name that is familiar to you because Alex is himself in the news quite frequently. His work has been published in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, USA Today, and probably most other major publications that you can think of. He appears frequently on television, uh, Fox News, MSNBC, Bloomberg. He is on podcasts. He's been on NPR. Uh, I could go on and on and on, but the odds are pretty good that at any given time in the course of a month, you could probably turn on the TV, listen to a podcast or read something and find Alex quoted or his his writing um, or being interviewed. And that's because immigration is in the news a lot, which is part of the reason we wanted to talk to Alex. We wanted to talk about the current situation in the United States uh, in terms of the border crisis. We wanted to talk about immigration policy. We wanted to talk about Americans' attitudes towards immigration. But because we're civil squared, we also wanted to talk to Alex about talking about immigration and listening to other people's opinions about immigration. And one of the very cool things about Alex, as you'll hear, is that as an expert on immigration policy, he's still learning, he's still willing to admit when he's wrong, and he's still listening to people who disagree with him. I hope you enjoy the conversation. We wanted to have you on to talk about immigration because it is something that is seems like it's always in the news. So for instance, like today, I just looked really quick and I found, you know, headlines all over the place for the last few days. So I'm just, if you will, um, if you will uh, placate me for a minute here, I saw a headline in Vox that says how immigration could solve America's population growth problem. Uh, New York Times about uh, some of the you know, legislation, Schumer Reddy's plan B to push immigration changes unilaterally. Fox News, I saw one that had a GOP rep blasting Biden on illegal immigration saying more gotaways than a sold out Penn State game, which just so we all know is that the home of the Nittany Lions holds 106,000 spectators. So, uh, And then CNN had one, nearly 6,000 undocumented immigrants apprehended daily at U.S.-Mexico border in April. And then just finally, there was a Pew study that was released three days ago that says most Americans are critical of government's handling of the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border. So it seems like, you know, as I say, immigration always seems like it's in the news. And it's something that no matter what our political preferences, leanings are, we're probably unhappy about it, right? And I want to start, because you're somebody who studies immigration, because you're somebody who has a broader context than most of us about this, Can you explain today, uh, in May of 2021, what the current crisis in immigration is? So the current crisis along the border is that a large number of Central Americans and Mexicans are showing up 
and trying to enter the United States. Many of them are trying to ask for asylum. Uh, many are just trying to enter unlawfully in order to live and work in the United States. And the reason why they are doing that is because they cannot enter under another legal way. There is no other visa available for virtually all these people to use to try to enter the United States. And certain rules set up along the border that were uh, mostly established during Trump, but have been continued under the Biden administration, um, make it impossible to ask for asylum by going up to a port of entry, which is, you know, the big gate that everyone talks about, and asking to come in because you have a fear of persecution in your home country. That basically doesn't exist anymore. So the incentive is for these folks to try to sneak in and then ask for asylum when they see a Border Patrol agent. So this is just a nasty example of all of the bad incentives and all of the bad policies in immigration that have been in place for about a century now. Uh, culminating in a crisis at the border, which happens every couple of years now. Mm-hmm. And why does it, I mean, why does it happen every couple of years? If, if you're saying the policies and the rules that we have in place haven't changed significantly, is that correct? Yeah, they just keep getting harsher and harsher. You know, we okay. get more and more enforcement. And I think that's part of the reason why they reoccur every once in a while, right? So to give you an example, in 2014, there's a big surge under Obama of largely like unaccompanied alien children. Uh, So kids of Central Americans uh, showing up in Central Americans, and they were coming up here uh, largely because Mexico had liberalized its immigration laws, allowed people to enter. And so they were coming up there. A lot of them are riding what was called the Beast, which is a train from Central America all the way up. So that largely stopped when the Obama administration convinced the Mexican government to crack down and to basically take these asylum seekers off the train. And then in 2018 uh, and 19, it happened again. Uh, during the Trump administration. And what happened then was a lot of these smugglers had figured out we can rent buses like wholesale from Central America. And these people show up at the border. They can ask for asylum. They can be let in. Some of them have asylum claims that are valid. Some don't. But they at least get into the United States and they can sort of uh, disappear. And they figured that out. So then the Trump administration um, convinced the Mexican government to crack down on traveling through Mexico on buses, which was effective, and then instituted a policy called Remain in Mexico, which said, if you ask for asylum, you don't get into the United States in the first place. You have to wait in Mexico. And then what's happened in 2020 and 2021 with this latest crisis is that the smugglers have figured out another way around it, which is to fly people up to the border uh, to the Mexican side. And um, due to sort of other particular rule changes in response to COVID-19, what happens is the U.S. government sends back all the adults that basically turn themselves in uh, and their families that they turn themselves in altogether, but they don't turn back children who are alone. So it's given this incentive for a lot of families to separate voluntarily on the Mexican side, send their kids across, and then they try to sneak across. And then they'll meet up with their kids later because the U.S. government grabs these kids, puts them in detention, and then tries to you know, reunite them with their um, you know, uh, immigrant families in the United States. It's really stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, but that's uh, the incentive that's been created. So when you describe it that way, it sounds like on the one hand, our approach to immigration hasn't changed dramatically. So it's not like today's crisis is a different crisis than the one that existed when we think about our own policies. It's, it's 
uh, it can be a crisis of incentives. It's always a crisis of incentives, I suppose, but changes outside of the United States that we have no control over at some level. That's true, right? Yeah, that's definitely true at some level. But the thing is, the big differences um, are not things that really change much year to year or decade by decade even. I mean, the main reason people are coming here from Central America or from around the world is because wages here are so much higher, even accounting for cost of living. So Michael Clemens, um, who's an economist at the Center for Global Development, wrote a fantastic paper showing that basically like a, a high school graduate with 10 years of experience from Central America can expect a three to six fold increase in his wages by coming to the United States. And that's accounting for the cost of living, right? right. So, um, you know, we can talk about all the enforcement procedures we want. We can talk about uh, throwing border patrol and troops on the border. We can talk about giving foreign aid to these countries, which, I mean, it won't work. But even if it did work, um, it would have to bridge that gap to the extent where the cost of traveling um, and the wage increase from coming here just don't don't add up to a good investment on the part of these migrants. And the fact is that it does. So right. Right. nothing so is, is really going to change that. Um, as long as it's appealing to live here as long as the economic calculation on the part of people who are trying to come here is that they will be better off here. They will continue to try and come. Yes. Yes, that's true. They will continue to try to come. And if they can come legally, they'll come legally. If they can come illegally, if that's the only option, then a lot of them are going to come illegally. So in that sense, right, it is kind of up to the U.S. government. How do we want this? Do we want folks to come in a black market? where you know that's somewhat regulated by the, the by the federal government or do we want them to come unlawfully in a black market with all the negative effects that go along with that that's okay. really the big choice right on so um okay so then i want to i want to think about that in terms of the government's action or the government's regulation and how immigration policy changes or hurts the situation. So on the one hand, we're saying, okay, uh, there's always going to be an incentive as long as the U.S. is a place where people see a better quality of life, better economic opportunities. Uh, there's always going to be incentive for people from other countries to come here. The U.S. government has, you know, has the power to make policy decisions about this. Now, if I listen to people, whether they're on the left or the right, I get a very simplistic idea, I think, of what, you know, immigration policy is. On the one hand, it's, hey, um, we're, we're going to put kids in cages and we're terrible, or it's we're too lax, you know, we're too lax in our policy. We'll just let anybody in. It's one or the other. There's nothing in between. Is that, I mean, what's, you know, I'm sure immigration policy is relatively complicated. Um, I hope. I would assume it is. What's a fair assessment of immigration policy in the United States and how it affects the situation we currently have that we we're going to refer to as a crisis? The general idea about U.S. immigration laws is that it's second most complicated portion of U.S. law uh, after the income tax. Okay. Uh, even worse than being complicated, though, it's very restrictive. So the vast majority of people who want to come here, there is no legal way for them to do so. Um, and the U.S. is much more restrictive than most other rich countries. So you hear a lot of people say the U.S. lets in about a million immigrants a year, and that's true. And that's a larger number than just about every other country in the world. Um, 
but the U.S. is also the third largest country in the world. So as a percentage of our population, the numbers coming in are about three-tenths of 1% of the U.S. population annually, whereas in a place like Canada, it's more like eight-tenths of 1%, so like almost three times greater. In Australia, it's about four times greater um, annually. In Switzerland, it's about six to eight times bigger, depending how you measure, right? So it's it's one of these things where we have this, uh, a lot of like American sort of myths, a lot of history, because we used to have a system that was very open. Mm -hmm. where basically anyone could come here. Um, And that changed uh, beginning in the late 19th century and really was a closed border by the 1920s. So stacking it up against, and I I do think that the sort of point that the U.S. has a very harsh immigration regime that makes it impossible for the vast majority of people to come here, and that causes the government to then crack down in response to this chaos, and then we have this sort of very vicious cycle. I think that vision of what's going on is the accurate one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and in those other countries that you mentioned, they have less harsh, less restrictive policies. Is that true? So they have um, more open legal immigration policies, okay. but they generally, it depends on the countries, but they mm-hmm. generally have very harsh enforcement policies on top of that. But they'll tell you, and the policies there will tell you is like, listen, we, these harsh enforcement policies would not work if it were not for this legal channel to come in. Mm-hmm. Because what that does is it just incentivizes and channels the vast majority of these people to use the legal system. Uh, they also have it easier in that almost all of them don't have a land border with a developing right. country. So right. that's just like, you know, the U.S. is really unique as a rich country in that it borders, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Mexico is more of like a middle income country now than, in, right. than like a super poor developing country or third world country. But it's still really poor compared to the United states and so like canada doesn't have that problem right Right, so um uh, australia doesn't have that problem new zealand doesn't have that problem Uh, switzerland doesn't have that problem uh so that's a uniquely american thing but even so like in australia they have this this system where like if you show up as an asylum seeker on their border you know you land with a boat um they basically put you in this camp on an island and it's been likened i mean it's not a death camp right but it is like the classical pre-world war ii designation of like a concentration camp where Mm -hmm. you can basically be there for like years and years and years high rates of suicide really violent really like bad stuff um and uh but 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 the people who run the australian system say listen like that's the only way we can get political support for a massive legal immigration system and that in, in, in Australia, by, for example, right, like their foreign-born population is 30%. Mm-hmm. Uh, ours in the U.S. is uh, only about 14. Okay. So okay. That's, that's sort of like the trade-off. Like yeah. more open yeah. uh, system means that you can have more people following the rules and then having harsh enforcement on top of that just makes sure that, that channels it. But harsh enforcement with a restrictive system, people don't, that doesn't really work anywhere. Yeah, right. Okay. So I mentioned before that Pew study that came out, uh, and it talks about how 68% of adult Americans basically say they're unhappy with the way that the government is handling the situation at the border. That's about how the government behaves and about policy. Uh, The Cato Institute, where you work, has just released, just a few days before that even, released uh, the results of a poll on immigration that's not specifically uh, just about policy and government handling, but it's about views towards immigration generally. What, what were the results of that poll um, that, that Cato found about how Americans view immigration and immigrants? Well, there's a lot of um, interesting tidbits in this poll, but one of the things that I found fascinating was just how little the typical American knows about yeah 
immigration. Um, and I think you could do this, I think, by the way, for, for every policy. And this is definitely yeah. not unique to Americans. There have yeah. been similar questions asked in similar countries, and it's generally even like even more off. But to give you an example, the respond the average respondent uh, thought that 40% of the US was foreign born, that 40% of the population were immigrants. Um, and the real number is about 14%. Um, this is probably just a result of, I mean, there's a lot of different things that could possibly explain this, but that's just like so far off Yeah, that we, off. yeah, we really need to start with like the basics. Like how many people are there who are immigrants? Like what percentage of the population? And I think this is just like a general sort of uh, related to just how um, enumerate most people are um, when thinking about any issue, frankly. Right, right, right. And, and maybe outsized sort of um, coverage in the news leads people to have kind of caricatured opinions of what the facts are. I think that I think that could be part of it. But what's interesting is we sort of divided it up also by like, what do immigrants think it is? What is second generation? Yeah. What the third generation? What we found is that uh, immigrants are actually the most wrong. Uh, they think the yeah, they think the population is 56% immigrant. And I think it probably just has to do with where you live. Um, so like most immigrants live by other immigrants, right? So if most of the people they see are immigrants, they're like, oh yeah, this must be like the rest of the country. Uh, whereas third generation immigrant, uh, third generation and higher Americans, right? People whose grandparents came or even people earlier than that, they think it's 36%. Yeah. Now the other caveat to that, right? Is like immigrants live in places with a lot of immigrants. Uh, so like California, it's like 27, 28% foreign born. So immigrants, there are off by like a factor of two. But if you're from West Virginia, which has the lowest immigrant share, about 1.5%, then that means that people in West Virginia are off by a factor of 24. Oh, wow. So, wow. <laughs> so it's like, in one sense, the immigrants are definitely more wrong. And in another sense, the third generation Americans and above are probably more wrong. And but, it's we're, just, but we're all wrong is what it comes down to. <laughs> we're all wrong to different extents. And it's one of the things that makes us all American. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally, totally. Well, and, and I do think that's an interesting point, right? Because most of us uh, have, are not native to the United States, to America, right? I mean, we all, I, I don't have to go back four generations to find an immigrant in my family on either side, really. Um, so I, I think that can, maybe that has some impact on the way we think about it. But I think that also has an impact, like the study, the, the survey and polling didn't find that people, so when we talked about, you know, having very restrictive regulations on immigration, you know, you might think, well, if we have really, really restrictive policy, it's because we don't like immigration in this country and we don't like immigrants. That's not what the survey found. Yeah, exactly. So we found that most people were welcoming toward immigrants, wanted, um, you know, basically the, the same percentage of people wanted to have more immigration as wanted to restrict it, as wanted to keep it the same. And generally, people were very positive about immigration. I mean, only 9% of Americans wanted to end um, immigration to the United States, uh, which is a very small, you know, percentage. You, you know, think following the news or following Twitter, right? It was a much higher percentage. So that was uh, really interesting to see. What's also interesting is there's just like a big partisan divide as well, oh, yeah. right? So, um, you know, if, if you want more immigration to the U.S. Uh, in our survey, you know, you were a Democrat, 47% of Democrats say, yes, they want more legal immigration. 21% of independents said it. 
and 11% of Republicans said it. And now the thing is, like, Republicans really haven't changed their opinion much on immigration over the last, like, 21 years. Like, it's mm-hmm. really about the same. The difference, though, is that Democrats went from looking slightly more pro-immigration than Republicans to being, like, four times as much. So that's real, the real big changes, right? Because you think, like, watching politics, oh, it was the Republicans that changed because you had, like, yeah. the rise of Donald Trump yeah. and the rise of sort of some very anti-immigration uh, politicians in the Republican side. Um, but it's not the Republicans who changed. It's yeah. really the Democrats who changed. And it's just, like, maybe luck of the draw that Republicans got the type of president that did yeah it wasn't so what you it's not like a groundswell of support that didn't exist before you're saying that's relatively constant in terms of attitudes towards immigration for republicans yeah it's relatively constant and and it sort of like goes back to like everybody assumes in democracy it's sort of like i'm going to show my republic my um my economist side here right but a lot of people assume it's like demand side right like whatever the voters want Uh, they generally get. And that's, I think, mostly true. But in this case, it might be more of a supply side effect, right? You have like a political entrepreneur, Donald Trump, who was a very good political entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. right? I think uh, brilliant Mm -hmm. in that sense. Um, uh, You know, really sort of like dominated and and shifted and and took over, right? Uh, This party through like some very good um, um, market moves. Mm -hmm. And that is probably more what's going on rather than like a groundswell of opinion or changing opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so it's also interesting to me, too, when when you talk about some of those results and we talked earlier about um, the way the policy works. So, you know, we don't have strong, strong feelings in this country in general that immigrants are people we, you know, we don't like, we don't want, we don't have some connection to. Um, But we have this very strong feeling by most people. You mentioned, you know, like any other policy area, people, we we probably don't have a lot of information. We hear a lot, but we don't have a lot of facts about it. Um, But also like other kinds of policy issues, I'm thinking of healthcare in particular. You know, if we get down to some basic principles, we have more agreement than policy or what we read in the news would lead us to believe. It's when we move out from the agreement about saying we, we are in favor of people uh, or we have a view of people who are immigrants as, as hardworking and, you know, we would be welcoming to this. We move from those kinds of agreements out to how do we handle it? That's where the disagreement starts, right? Yeah, there was a lot of disagreement there. What we found, though, is um, it was it was a little bit less than we thought, and a little a little different than we thought. So what's fascinating is um, one of the things I've been saying for years, right, for my whole career, is people say I'm against illegal immigration. I'm not against legal immigration. Right. In which my response is, okay, well let's let's make legal immigration easier right yeah, like yeah. what's the problem and and we always assumed like people on the other side or most of them were like they were really just anti-immigration and they just wanted to say illegal maybe for like political they're afraid you know politically correct or something like that and what we found was that a majority of people 56 percent said that the best way to deal with illegal immigration is to make it easier to come here mm-hmm. and so that was a, a really surprising and excellent like great to find uh finding. It was like Christmas morning, right? Like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like you know, I got that puppy that I always wanted. Was that <laughs> well, Yeah, and I think I, I actually think this is a great place to talk about. Again, I mean, you're someone who studies this all the time. You're looking at you're looking at it over periods of time. You're thinking about the incentives and everything else. 
your opinion about what you think should happen. You just, I mean, there's a spoiler, right? Obviously, (laughs) Um, um, you know, your opinion is not one that apart from those kind of results, if we are looking at the news, you, if you're in a room of people on the right and the left, you can still stand out as being someone that other people are going to disagree with because you have a pretty strong, radical opinion about what we ought to do about immigration. And what is it? Yeah, so uh, my my like strong opinion about it is that the U.S. should liberalize immigration to the extent where people who are not national security threats, who are not uh, violent or property criminals, who are not don't have serious contagious diseases, they should be able to move to the United States. They should be able to live and work here. And you know, maybe after a long period of time, uh, if they want to, and they've shown that they're sort of loyal and, and, and have, have integrated, uh, become citizens. And that is, it, it sounds like a very radical opinion, but that was basically the policy in the United States up until like the 1880s. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was basically the first American immigration policy. I mean, if you go back to read the um, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, one of the complaints against King George was that he restricted immigration to the mm-hmm. colonies. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of them that they listed as, as an enumerated uh, complaint. And then in the Constitution, um, there is no mention in Article 1, Section 8, which enumerates all of Congress's powers. There's nothing in there that says they have control over immigration. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have control over naturalization, which is the process of becoming a citizen, but that's different from being able to immigrate and come right. you know, to the country. And it wasn't until the 1880s when Congress and the Supreme Court said, oh, yeah, no, the Congress has like total control over this. They sort of like just invented that power out of, out of, out of whole cloth. So this is not a radical opinion over the history of the United States. It's a it's, super conservative opinion in the history of the United States, right? You're going way back. In that sense, right? Like super conservative, right? I'm, I'm really reaching back to the founding here and basically wanting to do it you know, almost identically that way. I, not entirely. I, I think they had some bad naturalization ideas back yeah, then, yeah, yeah. you know, based on, uh, on race and stuff, which I, I don't agree with. But in terms of being able to come here and live and work, yeah, pretty easy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty simple. And so, uh, you know, th- that kind of labels me as a radical nowadays in the United States. But in terms of like American history, um, this was basically the standard opinion for or, or, or not a weird opinion for um, the majority of the history of the United States. And I can imagine someone listening to this right now saying, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Why did it change? Like you say that um, this was an invented power, you know, in the later part of the 19th century. But what prompted that? Is that voters getting what they want? Kind of. So this is something I've spent a lot of time trying to investigate. And I I have a theory, but let me just describe, I guess, what happened. So up until 1875, there were zero federal restrictions at all. Zero. Mm -hmm. And then that year, they passed a law saying like, oh, criminals like can't come. And then they sort of wrote the law in such a way to try to exclude prostitutes, which Mm -hmm. was basically just used to block single Chinese women who were coming here to reunite with their their spouses so their male spouses who are working on the west coast so immediately you see sort of this sort of uh you know a, a, a xenophobic or, yeah. or or racial sort of component to it and then on the same time you have the rise of labor unions who are very opposed to immigration um and then you have sort of on top of that uh a sort of rising american nationalism and by, by nationalism i mean sort of this like World War One, early 20th century, like militaristic, we need to have a uniform, homogeneous population, because that's how we defend ourselves against foreign threats type of way of viewing the world. And then you combine that with the ideology of eugenics, mm. uh, which was coming up. 
um, and sort of chaos all over the world in terms of like the socialist, revol the communist revolution in, in Russia and, and fear of radicalization and stability and all that stuff sort of combined and conspired over the course of 40 years from the 1880s to early 1920s and convincing Congress to basically close the border. Now, one of the interesting things and one of my theories about it is I can't, I haven't been able to prove it empirically yet and I'm not sure if it is true, but um, you know, prior to 1920s, lots of states and localities allowed immigrants, to, uh, non-citizens to vote. Uh, and, and part of what I think might have happened is just states started to pass laws beginning in the late 19th century, like restricting, you know, you have to be a citizen to vote. And, you know, by doing that, you shrank, change the electorate away yeah. from people who, you know, supported more open immigration because they wanted their families to be able to come here yeah, yeah. directly um, to sort of a, a more of a direction of people who, you know, didn't care as much and were probably likely to be more hostile. So you have all these sort of things changing at the same time. And I think they all definitely conspired. And if you knock out one of them, yeah. you probably wouldn't have had the closing of the border that you actually had. Yeah, yeah. So this is, I don't want to get too far away from your point of view on this, because I think it's really important. And I also think, you know, it's important for people in our audience to hear that as someone who studies this, who knows, like most rooms you walk into, you're going to know that more than anyone else about immigration, Right. Um, if, I'm do, if I'm doing my job right. If you're doing your <laughs> job right, exactly. You're going to know more. You're going to have more facts at your disposal. Um, but you're still going to run. I mean, you're going to run into people who feel very strongly that you're, you're thinking about what we can do. That is by opening, making immigration less restrictive by, by, by returning to where we were prior to the latter part of the 19th century. Um, you're still going to run into people of really, really strong opinions and in order to be, whether it's you're, you're, persuade, you're trying to persuade people, getting them to understand those facts, you have to listen to what they're saying, right? You can't, you can't just say, hey, I'm Alex Noresta. Look, I know more than you. You should listen to me. You have to listen. You have to have some kind of understanding of what they're saying. So to put you in kind of the devil's advocate position, what are the objections that you have heard to, to your view um, and, you know, obviously you're probably not going to say they're great objections and you have responses to them, yeah. but, but there have to be objections that you consider seriously so that you can respond yeah. to them. What, what kinds of objections have you heard that are, are significant? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I consider all of these objections to be, you know, serious challenges and they're almost all, uh, uh, points of, uh, that are empirical that can be tested. Uh, that are based on specific factual claims. And so I find those to be wanting. There are a few arguments that I think are, are worth a lot, that are worth investigating. I wrote a book about uh, one of them. Uh, but I mean, the, the, the most common one is that, you know, immigrants are going to take our jobs, uh, lower wages, uh, and especially hurt uh, poor Americans. Mm -hmm. And the thing to keep in mind here is that empirically, that's not true. And it might sound weird to people listening, like, why wouldn't a big increase in supply lower wages. And the simple fact, I mean, the, the main reason why is that immigrants are also people. So more of them who come here, it also increases demand. So like, for, for the same reason why, you know, having a lot more babies doesn't lead to lower wages or a little more of a population doesn't lead to lower wages. Um, you know, it's because people buy things and increase demand and make things. So like the supply and demand effects basically cancel out. And a lot of the evidence is the demand effects are a little bigger. So wages might actually increase a little bit more yeah. because of that. But all the findings are like really small differences in wages, right? Like, like the, the, the biggest finding 
um, most negative finding in the entire academic peer review literature is by George Borjas, who's a Harvard economist, and he finds that um, immigration from 1990 through 2010 lowered the relative wages, and this is relative to other people in other education categories, but relative mm -hmm. wages of American high school dropouts by about 2.7%. And the other side, these other economists find that no, it actually increased the wages of that group by about uh, 1%. So this is a spread of 3.7%. Right, right. And it's relative. It's not absolute. Right. So actually, the wages for this group went up during the whole time. It's just they went up a little slower than it did for other groups, right? But that's a 3.7% gap. I've never heard like more disagreement in the entire literature on anything over 3.7%. Right, right, right. That's relative. It's not even an absolute. Yeah. But that's basically where the entire academic debate is. And so, you know, we talk about that. I'm like, yeah, maybe by a little bit, maybe a yeah. touch, but not in absolute terms. And it's all relative. So yeah. it's, it's really small. Um, probably one of the ones that I think really gets at people is, you know, why, why don't they just come legally? Right. Yeah. And I, I used to give a lot of speeches prior to COVID in Arizona to mostly conservative audiences. And I gave this speech one time with, um, you know, a lot of the economics of immigration. This nice lady came up to me afterwards. She was elderly. And she said, listen, I understand your arguments about why immigration is good for the economy. But why don't all the illegal immigrants just go to the post office and register and become legal? What do they have to hide? And putting myself in her shoes, if that's the way it really was. Then it would then it'd be great. It, it would be great, but I'd be like, oh, man, if that's the way it was and there are still like 10 or 11 million illegal immigrants, they must really do. They must really have something to hide. Right. <laughs> like, so yeah. if that's how you thought the world worked. Yeah. Then th this would be like a huge problem and crisis, a catastrophe. Right. So like the sad part of my job is having to tell people that, no, Ellis Island is, is closed. Yeah. Like if, yeah. if you want to come here and you're poor, you don't have an American family. Like, there's no way for you to come here legally. Um, yeah, that's well, the tough part. I mean, you're agreeing with her in, in the sense that you'd say, yeah, everybody should come here legally, but we need to change the laws to make that possible because to come here legally is so difficult. It's yeah. almost impossible. Right? Yeah, almost impossible. And that's the type of thing where there's just this, this education gap, right? Like imagine mm -hmm. trying to convince somebody that we should have a tax cut mm -hmm. where that person has no idea what the income tax is, no experience with it, thinks it doesn't exist. And if you told them about it, they wouldn't believe you. Like, imagine, like, how, how could you convince that person? Like, where, where do you start? Like, okay, well, there's this thing called the income tax. And it no. Takes income, and they're like, no, no, that's not real. Like, right. my, my grandparents didn't have to pay an income tax, you know, or, or something like possibly that. exist, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, listen, I wish. Yeah. But, but we're talking about, about reality, and we just need to have, like, sort of this common uh, basic, uh, facts to, to go on. And, and sometimes that's, and I'm not talking about facts, but like the effect of immigration on society. Right. I mean, just like basic facts, like there is immigration law. Yeah. It's really restrictive. Yep. Um, the immigrant population is about 14%. It's really hard to get here legally. Like just yeah. basic things like that. That does most of my job for me, I think. <laughs> right on. Right on. Well, and I think that's really important because I do think, you know, one of the things we talk about all the time is again, regardless if somebody's on the right or the left, or they're an independent, um, day to day, they are having discussions with their friends, with their family, with their coworkers about issues that really matter to them in their communities. And these issues are impacted by policy, right? But we often operate without a whole lot of knowledge, right? Or we don't feel comfortable with the knowledge that we have. So one of the things I love is you have 
um, this booklet now that's available in PDF, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But it's it's on the subject we're just talking about, kind of common objections to immigration. Because your point of view is, let's make immigration less restrictive. Let's make it easier for people to immigrate legally to the United States. Uh, and here are some common objections that you have heard, that you've researched, and you have responded to with, with empirical information, the kind of facts that people need to recognize, no, there are these laws. It is hard. There are you know, there are only 14% um, immigrant-born population here. Here are the facts. And you go through, what, like 12 different objections to it? Uh, 15. 15, okay. okay. Yeah, and, 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 you know, it's less than 1,000 words for each one, yeah. um, uh, which is good. And we have links, you know, citations if you want to follow up and read additional information. But, you know, I mean, the, the questions I go through are the economic ones that, that, that I mentioned. Why don't they come legally? Uh, welfare state, uh, access, you know, impact on budgets, economic inequality. That's more sort of for left-wingers who care about yeah, that. Yeah. Um, cultural assimilation, terrorism, uh, crime, mm. uh, myths about U.S. immigration policy in general, like are we really open, what percentage. Uh, we need to enforce our laws before we can change them. Um, uh, how, uh, you know, illegal immigration or, or even the legal variety destroys American sovereignty, um, immigrants won't vote for Republicans. Look what happened to California, right. um, which is a, a big one. Uh, immigrants with them bring with them like their bad cultures or ideas and sort of uh, overturn American institutions. Um, one that you hear sometimes, which is like, you know, immigration. Um, immigrants are like the best and the brightest. So by coming here, they impoverish their home countries. And then, you know, immigrants are, are people and people hurt the environment. So we shouldn't have them here. And these are basically the 15 most common ones that I hear um, from people, you know, on the left, on the right, in the center, people who just, you know, their first objection when hearing about this is, is almost always one of these. I almost never hear um, a different argument. And the yeah. next time I do, it's going to be in the new edition. It's going to be in the new edition. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Well, I think that's really important. And I think for our audience in particular, um, it's great to have someone who has this knowledge, but who isn't going to, I mean, you're not ridiculing people. You're not, you're not saying, obviously what I'm saying to you, you should just accept on faith, right? Here's, here's data, here's information, take it and, you know, go have your own discussions about this, but your confidence because of that data and because of the way you've looked at it is to say reasonable people with the right information will come to the same conclusion, hopefully. I think so. And, and, you know, people are always going to disagree about something, right? You know, I sure. mean, I, I, I think this is the best policy for the United States. I think it's the best policy for the migrants, the best policy for native-born Americans, and the best policy for people living in other countries. Yeah. But, you know, people have different sets of values. Um, you know, if, if they value something other than uh, prosperity and, and freedom, if they value other things like maybe homogeneity, which is a value a lot of people have, right? And I, I'm not going to be able to come in and tell you like you're wrong to value this thing. Like, yeah. I, I mean, that's just not, you know, this, you value something. I can't, you know, degustibus non est disputandum, right? In Latin, there's right, no, right. there's no disputing taste. So, right. um, you know, but, but, but the best I can do is to say, listen, if you have these objections, if you mean these objections, uh, if these are your serious ones, 
and we can talk about them and here they are. And I'm not going to call you names. I'm not going to call you a racist or a xenophobe. I mean, you know, there, I'm sure there are some right out there, right. but in my experience, the vast, vast majority of people who uh, oppose a more liberal and open immigration system uh, do so because they just have a uh, understanding of the facts or, or the data that do not line up with reality. And yeah. that if changing that, they usually change their minds. Awesome. Awesome. So I want to give you just a minute to, to talk about, you have a new book out with Ben Powell at Texas Tech, a professor of economics, and that's on Cambridge University Press. It's called Wretched Refuse, question mark, the political economy of immigration and institutions. Uh, just give us a, a little bit about the book. So the book investigates what Ben and I think is the best potential counterargument to our pro-immigration position. And that is that the reason, to back up a bit, right, the reason why the U.S. and other countries are rich is because of economic freedom, mm -hmm. because of capitalism and, uh, and representative government create good institutions to help us build wealth. And these institutions are not common. Immigrants come mostly from countries with really bad institutions to the United States. So potentially, right, they could bring these bad ideas with them. They could uh, overturn American economic and political institutions as a result, and therefore end up killing the goose that lays the golden egg, in which case immigration might actually turn out to be bad in the long run. Right and on. so we investigate this politically and empirically. We take a look at examples of immigration. We use like uh, surges of immigration uh, in different countries over time in the United States and Israel and Jordan. We take a look at how immigrants could affect society through uh, changes in culture, through, uh, through terrorism and violence, um, through corruption and through other means. And we basically find that either immigrants don't affect at all institutions and places where they settle or they result in slight improvements. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not talking about huge improvements, mm -hmm. but the difference between like, um, you know, a few, a few notches up on the economic freedom score. So that really alleviated a lot of our concerns because we started writing this, this sort of the, this literature, this book, investigating it. Um, and it's based on a lot of like academic papers we published over the years, right? But when we first started investigating this topic, we had no idea what mm -hmm. the answer was going to be. We were yeah, social yeah. scientists trying to do social science, trying to figure it out, asking the right questions, testing hypotheses. And the results were um, fantastic for our position and gratifying. So it turns out we can have more open immigration and we can preserve our culture and institutions and even in some cases improve them. That's awesome. Well, and I think there's not a better model then of kind of intellectual humility and being willing to say, you know what, I might be wrong. This is something I'm really committed to, but unless I go out and look at the facts and I really investigate this, I have to be open to the possibility that, that there might be a counter argument that's persuasive to me. So I think that's awesome. So as I say, we'll link in the show notes, both to uh, the brochure or the booklet on the 15 um, objections, most common objections, also to the book. If people want to follow your work, uh, because as you've just described, you're constantly learning, you're constantly looking at new things. Where's the best place for them to follow you? So the two best places is uh, at uh, Cato's website, that's C-A-T-O.org, um, or follow me on Twitter. And it's, my handle is at Alex Narasta, all one word. And, you know, my, we're constantly up there posting uh, my colleagues and I who work on immigration, and we produce a lot of original content that both addresses what's going on today, 
in the, in, the, in the news and in the country and in the world, as well as sort of the, looking at the deep research questions. So please follow us and, uh, you know, feel free to reach out and ask us some questions. Excellent. Thank you so much, Alex. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and I hope you will check out some of Alex's work and we've linked to it in the show notes. I think I can sum up really quickly one very important thing I learned from the conversation with Alex and I think it's really hard to talk to Alex and not learn something. But here's what I have to say and here's what I'm going to apply to my own discussions with family and friends. If Alex Naresta, who has been studying immigration, for years and years, who's written books about it, who is cited as an authority, who's constantly making appearances on national news networks, and people listen to him about immigration. If he, with all of that knowledge, can be willing to say, you know what, I might be wrong, I better get the facts. And he's willing to listen to people who disagree with his point of view and learn from that disagreement. If he can do that, I can do that. And I think that's something we can all take away and apply to discussions about immigration and probably about a whole lot of other topics too. Hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.